people kind of, you know, can take it or leave it as far as the crust is concerned. Right. And we want to offer 16 inches of bliss. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything is, everything is covered. Sorry, that's um, my inner yeah. child coming out there. <laughs> yeah, we're on the same wavelength. Um, but uh, anyway, I digress. <laughs> Money Mostly Canadian Podcast with your host, Freep Banerjee. Welcome back to Mostly Money, Mostly Canadian. I'm your host, Preet Banerjee. And on the show today, I'll be talking to Alex Shelvargin, a restaurateur who made the leap from the corporate world of advertising sales to setting up his own business in a completely unrelated field midway through his career. We're going to talk about that transition because it's something that boomers and Gen Xers may be faced with themselves, and it may not be entirely of their own volition. Now, before I introduce Alec, I want to give a shout out to Smiggins Beard, who left a five-star rating and a nice comment on iTunes for the show. He's 25 years old, loves learning about personal finance, and wants me to come to London to give a talk sometime. Well, little known fact, Smiggins, if I can call you Smiggins, I actually grew up in London, Ontario until I was about 14. Anyways, if you haven't done so yet, I really do appreciate you taking five seconds to leave a rating on iTunes. And if you want to take the additional time to write in a comment, on top of that, I do read them all. Now, I am just tickled pink to introduce my next guest, who's already laughing, because uh, we actually go way back. Um, Alex Shelvargin is the owner of Bar Fredo, which makes the best pizza in the world. And I, you know what? I, I, I don't say this lightly because I've done pizza pilgrimages to Italy because I'm a loser like that. <laughs> he also, at Barfredo, makes what I consider to be the best gelato in the world. And yes, same deal. I have been to Italy. I've done the gelato tours. I've been taken through what's the difference between good and bad. And we'll get into that later on in the show. And I can honestly say that your gelato is life-altering. You're making me blush, Preet. <laughs> well, they also can't see what I'm doing under the table. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, um, now, this restaurant, Barfredo, is a new endeavor for Alec because he was in the corporate world uh, selling ads for major TV networks, uh, magazines, and, um, and other functions, totally unrelated to what you're doing now, mm-hmm. in a sense. And we also share a very unique bond because... Um, I don't know if you remember this, but we are both graduates of the Bridgestone Racing Academy. That's right. That's right. But we didn't meet till years after. No, well, we actually met. Uh, I I did the Bridgestone Academy back in 1990. Oh yeah, that's right. And then we met through the uh, the car club that we yes. just happened to uh, join. And uh, then I think you embarked on uh, the Bridgestone Racing Academy after that. That's right. That's right. So we have uh, a love of cars and all things fast in common as well. Anyways, Alec, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, so uh, let's let's get right into it. Um, with the show, every guest that I have on, there's a general format that I follow, and that is I want to get to know a little bit about you first. And, you know, let's let's go back to in the Coles Notes version. What happened after high school? Tell me a little bit about your career progression. Sure. Um, so uh, when I left high school, I actually had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. Um, so I uh, just did what everyone else did and uh, went to university, at least the people in my school did. Um, I was the only one that actually attended uh, the University of uh, Western Ontario uh, for my high school. So I was kind of going at it alone. Um, I really had no clue what I wanted to do uh, at that point. 
at that time also there was no uh, no um, reason and uh, no one was being forced to actually uh, major in a particular uh, uh, discipline. Um, I did, however, in my last year, major in sociology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a field that a lot of people may actually uh, follow, but can't really do much with it other than, you know, uh, you know become a sociologist and then maybe uh, help with, uh, you know, other people's problems. That's not something I was terribly interested in. <laughs> um, but when I did actually uh, graduate, I found myself uh, scratching my head wondering, okay, what's my next step? Um, and I actually fell into the uh, ad industry, in particular uh, the media industry. So um, I, uh, I was uh, hired by Ogilvy & Mather in Toronto, and uh, I worked in their media department. Uh, it was basically uh, like a residency. Um, put in my hours, got paid next to nothing, and uh, progressed through the field. Uh, moved to another agency uh, that uh, focused specifically in uh, media, um, which was new at the time. That was back in the late 80s, early 90s. And again, not making a whole lot of money, but I knew that if I put in my time and uh, really sort of uh, committed myself to this, that I, I could uh, move forward. And and I did, um, but I found myself uh, wondering, okay, what's my next step? Because media was interesting, but it wasn't you know so interesting that I wanted to make it my uh, lifelong uh, uh, commitment. So uh, I did a little bit of soul searching and uh, realized, you know what? Before I commit to a life with someone and get too deep into uh, life itself, um, I've got this opportunity to actually explore other avenues. So I actually quit my job at the media agency and I uh, embarked on a, uh, uh, well, a passion, which was uh, racing. Right. And that's when I joined the uh, Bridgestone Racing Academy. And that was back in, I believe, 1990. So and that was back when it was at Shannonville. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And that's when uh, Charlie Goodman was ahead uh, of it. And right. uh, Brett, his son, uh, was running it. Yeah. And Brett's a good friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I did that for a season. I thought, okay, I'm going to give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, at least I have no regrets. I, I gave it a shot. It didn't work out in terms of a profession, but it certainly worked out, um, you know, for following up as a as a hobby. And I think it will be a lifelong hobby. I've been pursuing it for quite a number of years. It's on hold right now just because I've got this business going. Sure. But, um, you know, certainly uh, when things, uh, you know, steady a little bit, um, I'll be able to uh, pursue it further. So it's kind of like, you know, what I did, you know, uh, after after university, I went to the Bridgestone Racing Academy, we try and pursue this possible career in auto racing, realized AI started too late and I didn't have any money. Yeah. So I decided, all right, so I have to go make some money so that one day I can get into auto racing that's as, exactly as a hobby. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Cause but, it's not a cheap endeavor. That's oh God, for sure. no, it's, it's ridiculously expensive. Um, a future podcast, I'm actually going to get some, some professional race car drivers on to talk about the costs and the economics of auto oh. racing, but that's for another time. Yeah. Okay. So let's fast forward after the Bridgestone Racing Academy. When did you realize that you weren't going to become a professional? race car driver uh probably about lap two half yeah (laughs) (laughs) that was it that was it for me lap two yeah yeah not not that great yeah uh (laughs) and uh, it became abundantly apparent when i uh, actually compared myself to some of the instructors there and uh hugo which we both know Uh, um, yes we both know he's the guy is such a natural talent um he just you know was operating on another level Mm -hmm. and 
even he may not be at the level of the guys that are, you know, racing professionally. So it was so beyond my scope, so beyond my ability. Very humbling, isn't it? Very humbling. Yeah. Um, but you know what? I accepted it and I realized, okay, you know, that's a fact. I can't change that. Um, but I can still pursue it um, from a hobby uh, uh, perspective. So, so how did you get back into the corporate world then? So what I did was um, I, I went back on a freelance basis. And again, I did that only because um, I knew I didn't want to do this full time. Right. Um, or at least for the rest of my life. Uh, what I did realize though, pretty quickly when I first started working at Ogilvy and Mather was the sales side of things actually kind of appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm not sure why, but in any event, what I did was after my freelance uh, job, I, uh, started looking for a, a sales position. Funny thing is the sales position found me because one of the people that I used to work with who was on the sales side and I was on the buying side, approached me and said, would you be interested in a, a, a position here with us? Uh, it's a newly created position. I said, absolutely. So um, I pursued that. And um, about two years later, uh, that all fell apart. Um, it fell apart because there were corporate changes. And this was back in the mid nineties. Okay. So, you know, that sort of thing is, you know, I already got a taste of that. That seems to be I think the new reality for everyone is there's no such thing as job security. Right. So you need to, um, you know, constantly evolve with, uh, you know, the reality that you're facing. So in any event, it, it was a great um, experience. I was there for about two and a half years. Uh, literally within about two days, I found another job. Um, and that was on the print side. Mm-hmm. So the first job uh, in sales was actually outdoor. And that was working on the airport advertising throughout Canada. And this was before the um, Canadian airports had privatized. So um, we was represented... That, was that Spotfax? Uh, no, actually, that was um, what's now called CBS Outdoor. Okay. But at the time, it was called Mediacom. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah, I worked over at uh, Spotfax after that. And that was Canadian, or sorry, that was Air Canada's in-flight magazine and media. Right. So I was there for a number of years, and then I ended up going into the broadcast side of things. So uh, I started working at Alliance Atlantis. I was there for about uh, eight years, I believe it was. Um, And as, uh, you know, the the actual industry itself has um, been under, you know, tremendous and profound changes in the oh, last yeah. little while. I think uh, Ron Tight uh, in a previous podcast made mention of how that landscape is changing. Oh my God, the ground is shifting as we speak. It is, it is. And it's, uh, I mean, it's at an accelerated level. So what was true six months ago or a year ago is now no longer the case. I mean, it's it's changing so quickly and so profoundly that people have to be light on their toes and, and move and, and, you know, shift with it. So before we talk about the the shifting economics of, of that industry, um, tell me a little bit about ad sales. Um, so you would, uh, you would sell ads on behalf, so ad space That's right. available on the network to advertisers who wanted to sell their product. So what's the process of that? I mean, is it you have a portfolio of clients and you just go back to them over and over again saying, you know, what do you want to achieve? Here's how we do it. And Stay with us. We'll be right back. You hear a lot about supply chains these days because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. 
That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, in a nutshell, that's basically what it is. Um, you're working with, for the most part, uh, ad agencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they represent their clients. Um, so the agencies themselves, they actually have media departments and creative departments. Mm-hmm. Um, what's changed, though, in the last 20 years is, and I'm going to sort of uh, go back to my um, original um, job at Ogilvy & Mather. That was what was called a full-service agency. Okay, And at the time... A media person like myself would work with um, an account director. The account director was the person that basically brought together creative, media, and the accounting department. And they, they were the glue. So they, they were basically the, the, the central hub of um, the agency. Funny thing is, I sort of digress a little bit. That was my first brush with fame. Uh, the person I was working with, my account director on uh, Quaker Oats, was a guy by the name of David Furnish. Um, I know that name. And this was probably- I think I just saw his his husband perform in Las Vegas. Yeah, that's right. Elton John. Elton John. Yeah. So um, he actually, at the time, this was back in 88, he hadn't, well, to the best of my knowledge, hadn't even met Elton at that point in time. Um, But- in any event, that was, uh, so David was the, the central figure for Quaker Oats. Mm-hmm. And um, so he brought together those those three disciplines. Uh, what's happened since is, uh, for the most part, the ad industry and the agencies have really sort of specialized. So you've got creative agencies, you've got media agencies, you've got content marketing agencies. Right. Um, you've got uh, very specialized disciplines. And um, that that's, you know... It's great from a, an efficiency standpoint and an economic standpoint, but what ends up happening is you've got these three disciplines that really don't communicate with each other. Right. So the agencies, what they'll do is you'll actually have one client that has maybe two or three different agencies. One agency is an agency that um, uh, uh, performs the media function. Another mm-hmm. one performs the uh, creative function. So in any event, uh, going back, I, uh, I actually work a lot with the media agencies um, and we determine, well, through their help, through the agency's help, uh, they tell us this is what the client strategy is, what their objectives are. And what we do is we formulate plans um, and try and sell those plans to the agencies that, uh, you know, in, in some way address all the objectives and uh, issues that the client's facing. Um, if, if, if I was an advertiser and I went to, you know, uh, an ad agency and I said, um, I'm selling a new cereal, you know, and I want to advertise it. How do you how do you gauge the success of um, an advertising campaign and how did you do it before and how do you do it? now and has that changed? Yeah, that's changed quite a lot. Um, in the past, it used to be very simple metrics. It was a reach frequency uh, formula and it was standardized. So uh, quite often, and this was well back when I started, you'd have a, uh, a target of say a 50 reach in a 3.5 frequency. Um, what that meant was 50% of the target demographic audience was reached during the period um, of the campaign, an average of 3.5 times. Yeah. Some people were reached, hit with that particular ad once or twice. Others were hit with it five or six times. On average, it was three and a half. Um, I believe back then the metric was if you can reach someone at least three times, then that's what registers with them. Right. 
Um, now it's just, 20. <laughs> well, you know, with so much fragmentation, that worked when there were like three TV networks out right. there yeah. and maybe a handful of radio stations and no digital. Right. Now there's like incredible media fragmentation. Uh, it's, it's next to impossible to generate those kind of reach figures. Right. Way back when you'd have these enormous TV shows. Um, and this was when there were only a handful of networks where in one evening you could reach 25, 30% of the population. Right. Now it's, you're really lucky to reach 5%. You know? Yeah, because I, I think I noticed the other day uh, someone had tweeted like um, how many people watch X number of shows and the highest rated show is being watched by like two or three million people or something yeah. like that. And you go back to the heyday of network TV where it was just the majors and people who watched the Carson show, it was like, I don't know, like 10, 15 million on like an average night or something yeah. like that. Like and I'm, that was what? After 1130, something like that? Yeah. And you know, how many people watched the finale of MASH? It was like... 50 million people or something like that. And today, like a smash hit is, you know, probably a fraction of that. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So, so, and also uh, now you went from three channels to 20 to 100 to 500 plus a million YouTube channels. Well, now you've got all this user generated content. Um, I mean, it's incredibly cheap for people to produce their own content. Anyone can do it. So it's democratized media. Right. So this has squeezed revenues for the incumbents. And so this is an effect (laughs) where uh, belts have to be tightened as they react to the changing economics. And as a result of that, a lot of people... Uh, were downsized, including yourself eventually. Yeah, uh, actually a couple of times. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, um, but that, you know, that was fine. Um, I totally understood, you know, why that was being done. It wasn't a personal thing. Right. It was sheer economics and it was, you know, business decisions that had to be made. I get it. And, uh, you know, no hard feelings. And in fact, I wouldn't be here where I am right now if those previous things hadn't happened. Right. So, you know, you kind of look at it, you know, philosophically. Was that, is that always the case? I mean, have you seen some people in response to being downsized maybe not have such a calm reaction to it? Yeah, a lot of people actually that I know um, have, you know, been destroyed by it. Yeah. Or, you know, at least temporarily. And it is a big knock to your ego. Sure, um, of course. Because, I, and it's hard to see the big picture. When you're being downsized, that's a big change to your way of life. You're pay is gone. There's no more security. Mm -hmm. You don't know what your next step is going to be. There's so much in the way of unknowns that it's quite hard for, you know, a lot of people to deal with. And uh, the first time I was downsized, I actually kind of rejoiced because I wasn't really all that happy at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw things changing and, um, you know, it wasn't a big surprise. I kind of expected it to happen. Right. um, Because at the time it was, um, our company had been bought out by another company and, um, you know, I stuck around for about a year and a half, uh, maybe even two years. But I saw the writing on the wall and generally speaking, when one company buys another, it's, you know, the people that got bought out that are released. Right. Yeah. and I, I think, you know, you mentioned that some people were um, at least temporarily destroyed. I think for a lot of people, you know, their their sense of identity is influenced to a large extent by what they do, where Absolutely. they work, the people they surround themselves with. And when that gets sort of taken out from under you in one fell swoop, it can be a very traumatic uh, experience. Yeah. So um, how many times have you been downsized in that industry? Uh, twice. Twice. And um, in both, you know, instances, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't surprising. Actually, both times I kind of saw it coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what happens in, you know, not only this industry, I'm sure pretty much every industry, 
there's a lot of chattering, there's a lot of rumors going around and, you know, people start to get really uncomfortable and kind of figure, okay, you know, when's the ax going to fall and who's it going to fall on? And in this particular industry, I got to imagine it's probably the same for some of the other industries too, but in this particular one, it's been ongoing for years. So everyone's been, you know, walking on eggshells for the longest time. And that's really why I want to get out of the industry. When it happened the second time, I thought, okay, you know what? It's a shrinking industry in terms of the workforce. Um, There's absolutely no security whatsoever. You never know what's going to happen next. I want to sort of take control of my future. And and that's when I thought to myself, okay, you know what? I'm going to take full advantage. And I hope I'm not, you know, jumping ahead on anything here. Not at all. Um, I want to take full advantage of the uh, transition services that my last employer offered. So I did. I jumped right into it and um, it took me maybe six weeks to get through absolutely everything they offered. And I think I had three or four months access to this service. I did access it for four months, but um, I went through all the courses. I took some of the courses a couple of times. Um, a lot of them were entrepreneurial courses because I knew that's what I needed to do to you know, sort of forge my own path. Mm-hmm. But my, I guess my biggest decision was, what do I do with this? Where right. do I go? Yeah. What service am I ultimately going to be offering? And I kept coming back to food, but I really didn't know what I want to do. And I struggled and struggled. And I even thought about, okay, baby boomers, that's a you know huge demographic, a very affluent demographic. It's growing. There's got to be some sort of potential there. And I worked with that a lot. I did a lot of research while I was, um, you know, going through the transition service. Um, I actually had a counselor that I could bounce ideas off of. So I took full advantage of his services. Um, But it wasn't until my wife said to me, and this was after probably about two months of scratching my head, wondering, okay, what's my next step? Where am I going to go with this? And she said, what about gelato? And that was an epiphany for me at the time. I just thought, you know what, that's exactly what I need to do. So literally within about 72 hours, I'd done all my research on, you know, how to make gelato. What's the best place? Where's the best place to learn how to make it? And I think my own sort of personal philosophy is if you're going to do something, do it right. Right. And, you know, do it from scratch. Don't just sort of try and take shortcuts. Don't um, try and do it the quick way because ultimately the quick way everyone can do, and that's not going to differentiate you from anyone else. So what I ended up doing was uh, researching where in Italy to learn how to make gelato, where are the best places and I found actually two places. Uh, one was the Italian Culinary Institute in Calabria, mm-hmm. which I booked within, I think, 24, 48 hours of doing my research. Wow. And then a day later, I booked my course at uh, the Carpigiani Gelato University in Bologna. So so you went to two universities that specialize <clears throat> in teaching how to make gelato. That's right. I didn't even know that something like that existed. Only in Italy. And how long are these courses? Um, so the um, one in uh, Calabria was uh, just over a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically what I did was I um, went in October. I came back uh, just before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in Bologna for uh, a number of weeks um, working at the, or rather learning um, how to make gelato, artisan gelato, by the way. Uh, what's what's the difference between artisan gelato and gelato? Okay, so um, regular gelato is what's made pretty much everywhere in every country. Mm-hmm. Um, in Italy, you're going to find you know conventionally or commercially made gelato just about anywhere. There's over thirty five thousand gelaterias in Italy right now, I believe. Holy smokes! There's about a thousand or. 
1,200 in North America. So that gives you, you know, sort of an idea yeah. of what the scale is over there. It's it's part of everyday life mm-hmm. in Italy. Right. Um, and that's where it originated. Now, there are a lot of big companies in Italy, based in Italy, that make all the fixings for gelato. So from the mixes, you can basically just add water or just add milk, and you've got gelato ready to go. <clears throat> oh, so it's like tang. Yeah, pretty much. It's like the tang equivalent of gelato. That's exactly okay. it. Because, it, it, I mean, gelato is chemistry. Mm-hmm. Just like baking, you need to understand how the various ingredients interact. Um, but most people don't take the time to learn how to do that or, or even care about that. So you've got these enormous companies that exist. I went to a trade show in Rimini um, about a year and a half ago, which is just for gelato, chocolate, and coffee. And it's attended by if I remember correctly, about 200,000 people from around the world. Wow. I was one of the few North Americans that were there. Wow. But it's standing room only. I spent five days, eight hours a day at that trade show, and I got through the gelato and maybe 10% of the chocolate, and that was it. (laughs) Um, it, It just... It was so enormous in its scale. When is this uh, conference? I would like to go. Yeah, um, <laughs> middle of January. Oh, hey, so yeah, middle better. of the winter. It's it's a great chance to get out of this uh, you know hell hole in the winter, and you know it's not quite as cold in uh, Rimini or Bologna. So, right. um, but uh, no, I mean it was a, it was a really good experience. But that trade show was run by these big companies. Right. So they they offer pretty much everything from start to finish. Um, the best way. You can tell the difference between a commercially prepared gelato and an artisan gelato is um, just by looking at it. That, yeah, that's the vibrancy the of the color, right? Because I, as, as I said, I did a pilgrimage um, of gelato and pizza in Italy, and I'm not kidding. I, you know, I went on a tour, and and someone said, "Listen, we're going to go to some fake places, you know, commercially prepared gelato. Then we're going to go to the gelato that you want to, you know." These are the places you want to go to. Yeah. And they said to me, said, listen, the telltale sign is when you walk in, look for a banana flavored gelato. And if it's yellow, don't get it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> because bananas, when you open them up, they're not yellow. They're not this, this no. very vibrant yellow color. They're, you know, it's like, an like off-white. a gray off. Yeah, exactly. And so that should be your first sign where if they're trying to appeal to you visually yeah. over everything else, then... But people eat with their eyes. So it's, you know, it's a merchandising ploy. Sure. And I totally get it. But if you want gelato without, you know, preservatives, additives, and all sorts of nasty things in it that make it look really beautiful, then you you have to look elsewhere. So, I mean, there's no such thing as a blue gelato. Right. I mean, (laughs) we make blueberry gelato. We we make blueberry sorbetto. And what you see is a really deep purple for Mm -hmm. the sorbetto. And you see like a a beautiful lightish purple purple for the uh, gelato because there's uh there's dairy in that mm-hmm. but we don't we don't use any of the artificial colors any of those mixes whatsoever so for the artisan gelato i literally start with milk sugar a touch of cream we pasteurize that all together and um, we let it age we actually add in uh, skim milk powder as well to add protein and that helps with body mm-hmm. um and and mouthfeel so we let that age for a couple of days and then we use that mix to create all the various recipes. So okay. an artisan gelato, I can tweak the recipe any which way I want, and I know exactly how it's going to work out afterwards. I, I can tweak even its freezing point. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So, Thanks. and you know, that's because I understand and I know what the formulas are behind. I understand the chemistry behind You're like it. the Walter White of gelato. Whoever he is. <laughs> oh my God, you don't watch Breaking Bad? No, no. 
Oh, I think we need to end this. I'm kidding. <laughs> Basically, he was a high school chemistry teacher that um, uh, turned to making drugs oh, to uh, okay. uh, support his family because he was uh, had terminal cancer or something right. like that. So anyways, um, so that's fascinating. Then, you know, the chemistry of the air, the artisanal gelato versus um, commercially prepared gelato. And so as... Um, you know, there's. Uh, I live in the distillery district, and there's um, a pretty popular place called uh, Soma, mm-hmm. uh, which has chocolate and, and gelato. And a lot of people say, you know what, the gelato there is fantastic. And it is good. Um, certainly, if you've never had gelato before, uh, or even if you have and you've gone there, you say, yeah, that's pretty good. So I did an acid test. I was like, all right, because I had just been to your place. And, um, and I love your coconut gelato. Mm. Like, oh my God. I mean, there's coconut gelato and then there's what you make, yeah. which is on a totally different level. And so I thought, well, let me do a side-by-side comparison because a lot of people rate Soma as some of the best gelato in the city. Right. So I went and I had their coconut gelato and there's, it's good, but there's no comparison. I mean, with yours, you actually have, you know, fleshy strands of oh, coconut yeah. Oh, yeah. in the coconut gelato. And it is, like you said, the mouthfeel... Um, the taste of it, it is just unbelievable. I know I'm going at on at length on how amazing his gelato is, but it is really that good. Anyways, so, okay, so that's artisanal gelato. The other thing that you did was you have a gorgeous machine yeah. uh, on display and uh, and that you can only buy in Italy. Yeah, actually all our machinery is sourced directly from Italy and actually directly from Bologna. So um, we've got our pasteurizer, which is uh, from Italy. We've got an immersion blender, which is very specialized, which is also from Italy. Um, and then we've got what's uh, called a, an FA or Catabriga FA machine. And that's what actually performs all the magic and it makes the gelato the old school way. So there are so many companies out there that make um, what we call batch freezers to actually make the uh, gelato, spin it, incorporate air and freeze it. Um, They're all what are called horizontal batch freezers. And they do a great job of quickly uh, making gelato. They can make it in about seven to eight minutes uh, per batch. It takes us about 20 minutes to make each batch. Mm -hmm. And that's because uh, we're using a vertical uh, batch freezer. And what it does is it really gently massages the mixture. It does freeze um, it very quickly in terms of the ice crystals because the key is get very small ice crystals. Uh, If you don't get the small ice crystals, then you get a sandy feel in the mouth. Mm. So, um, But what we do is by using this FA machine, which was actually originally designed in 1927, Mm -hmm. we've just had the updated version of it. Uh, it, it really does gently massage the product. It incorporates very little air. So as opposed to ice cream, for instance, which can have up to 50% air, mm-hmm. ours is about 20% air. Um, and that, again, it just gives it a bit of a fluffiness, but it, it gives you a much denser product. So you've got a lot more flavor when you you know take a, a spoon or you don't even need a spoonful of gelato. You just need like a little spatula um, of gelato on the tongue and the flavor just hits you. And it does. That, that's the, the, what we're trying to do is, you know, it's a flavor bomb that we're looking for. Um, so air takes away from the flavor, but air also makes the product softer. Right. Um, and quite frankly, who wants to pay for air? Right. You know, we're 
putting out a you know a, a very good product that has very little air in it, um, and you're, you're paying for the milk, you're paying for the nut paste that we use. So whether it's from um, uh, northern Italy for our hazelnuts or southern Italy and Sicily for the pistachios, for instance. Uh, you know, we want the product to speak for itself and, and for, uh, you know, customers to get what they pay for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, going back to uh, the, the ingredients we use, we literally use a handful of ingredients uh, to make the gelato. Um, we don't need to incorporate all sorts of various uh, stabilizers that are, you know, quite frankly, not all that good for you, despite the fact that they're naturally occurring. So for instance, one that occurs in a lot of uh, gelato and a lot of ice cream and a lot of dairy products for that matter is something called carrageenan. And it actually is sourced from red seaweed. And it's a naturally occurring product. It's called an alginate. And what it does is it thickens. Um, And it's used in things from yogurts, commercially prepared yogurts, ice creams, sour cream, um, even chocolate milk for that matter, and a lot of gelatos, um, a lot of gelato, commercially prepared gelato mixes. What I found, and I read about this before I actually found out about it on my own, was that carrageenan actually can adversely affect people's intestinal comfort. Mm -hmm. Um, And the funny thing was, before I even thought about you know, embarking upon what I'm uh, currently doing, I was eating ice cream fairly regularly, but I wasn't feeling good about it afterwards. I was kind of regretting it. And it was just- I think a lot of people would share that, but you mean like physically you weren't feeling good about it. Physically, yeah. Yeah. It was, it it was just upsetting my stomach Mm -hmm. and um, it it wasn't anything really bad. It was just, I just wasn't feeling quite right afterwards. Um, Then I stopped eating it altogether and I felt fabulous very quickly. And I realized, okay, I looked at the ingredients and sure enough, carrageenan was in there. Mm. Um, And it's used as a stabilizer and it's used, the other thing, going back to our um, previous uh, notes about, you know, how to determine a real gelato or an artisan gelato from a, you know, commercially prepared one is you get these big fluffy mounds of gelato in the display cases. You can only achieve that with these industrially um, available mixes um, that have a lot of carrageenan, that have a lot of these stabilizers to enable the gelato to keep its form. Gelato, artisan gelato anyway, by its nature, will start to collapse, you know, fairly quickly. So we make it in small batches because we can't afford to, you know, have enormous batches that just collapse in on themselves. Um, So that's, that's part of the artisanal approaches, small batch, no preservatives, no, uh, you know, stabilizers that are going to, you know, have a, a, a negative impact on our customers. Okay. So let's, I want to change gears um, only because there's more that I want to talk about. Um, obviously, I love you, Gelato. And I should say, I'm not being paid to do this. No. <laughs> this is not a paid advertisement. <laughs> I don't have money just, to pay you to do this. This is honestly, you just, you have to try this Gelato. And I'm actually going to, um, we're going to offer a promo to the listeners of the podcast um, Barfredo is at Sherway Gardens in Etobicoke. So if you're around the area, um, we're going to have a promo at the end of the show that you can take advantage of so you can get some free gelato and see what we're talking about. And yeah. so you can see for yourself, like clearly you can see the passion that Alec has for gelato. Yeah, we're making it in front of everyone. We have nothing to hide. I, I mean, I've never, no one's ever talked to me about the uh, uh, proportion of air, uh, the size of ice crystals, the mouthfeel of gelato. Right? So clearly the passion is evident and it comes through in the product. But you also have uh, amazing pizza and I I love pizza. Like I love pizza. Mm-hmm. 
And when I was in Italy, before we went, I would check and say, all right, where are the places you have to go to have some authentic uh, Italian pizza? And I went and I was in heaven and uh, came back here. I was like, man, can't anyone make, you know, uh, the different types of pizza that I really like to the level of quality that I like it. And so the same thing, I went down to Chicago, had some deep dish Chicago style pizza. Like, man, why can't I get that here? And then you told me that, hey, I'm opening up this place, making pizza, went there, saw this pizza on display, which first of all, the visual appeal of it was unbelievable. Um, so I decided to have a, a slice and I was again blown away. And I'm not saying this, I'm not saying this because Alec is my friend. It is legitimate. I would stake my reputation on saying that that pizza that I had was the best pizza that I've had in my life. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what made that pizza so incredibly awesome. And I want to start by, um, tell me the story about the pizza chef. I don't know, is that the right term? Is it Pizza yeah. maker, pizza chef, I don't Whatever you want to say. Um, yeah, so uh, we hired a guy by the name of Antonio. And um, he actually comes from a small town uh, just southeast of Rome. Um, he's actually a pastry chef by trade. Mm -hmm. But he also spent a number of years when he was in Italy learning how to make pizza. Um, so he's a true pizza yolo. Um, so he became part of our team fairly quickly when we started uh, undertaking the pizza program because the pizza program wasn't with us um, when we first opened, mm -hmm. um, but it did uh, become part of our offering probably within about six to eight weeks of opening. Okay. Um, so the guys that I'm working with, just to uh, step back a little bit, um, the guys that I'm working with that I have been working with ever since we uh, first opened, um, they've been in the fine dining industry for quite some time. And uh, they actually have background in uh, pizza making as well, as do I actually. I worked at Pizza Pizza and Pizza oh, yeah, Hut right. way back when, you know, <laughs> when I was a teen. Um, so there were actually quite a few of us that actually have pizza backgrounds. Now, albeit Pizza Hut and Pizza Pizza are on a different level than right. you know what we're producing, but at least the fundamentals were there. Um, anyway, so Antonio joined our team, and um, you know he he wasn't necessarily the the um, the foundation of our pizza program, but he certainly added to it, mm -hmm. and um, you know. Great character, added a lot of personality, but what he did more than anything was he um, displayed to the rest of our staff just the kind of passion that's required to you know put out a really good product mm -hmm. um, and, and showed that just like with everything else that we're making at Barfredo, it's about the ingredients and you don't need a lot of ingredients. You just need simple, fresh, honest ingredients to make a really high quality product. And really that's what the Italian food culture is all about. It's about using just what's available, fresh, fresh ingredients, and, and not really playing with them too much, letting the ingredients speak for themselves. Right. So that's what we do with our pizza, for instance. So the, the sauce itself is literally made by hand. Mm -hmm. We hand crush the tomatoes that we bring in from Italy. Um, and it's a very specific, <laughs> I remember Fiona and I were talking to Antonio and he was saying there's only one tomato that we'll use for the sauce. And do you, do you know the name uh, off the top of your head of what that is? Like, uh, it'd be a San Marzano yes. uh, tomato. Yes, that's yeah. the one. Yeah. And he said, won't make the sauce with anything but that. And yeah. so you bring that in. We bring it Italy in from Italy. And you hand crush it. And we hand crush it and we just add a, a handful of ingredients to it, you know, um, basil, oregano, uh, some garlic. We don't even cook the sauce. Mm -hmm. uh, we want it to be bright. We want it to be fresh. Mm -hmm. So the sauce ultimately gets cooked you know, when it's on the pizza sure. in the oven. Um, but we, we just, you know, have very simple ingredients that go on those pizzas. So we don't have anything like pepperoni or pineapple or any of those, you know, 
toppings right. that are really sort of a gimmicky, gimmicky, but really sort of the North American take right. on pizza. We want to offer authentic Italian fare, street fare. So one of the things that I thought was really cool, and it, and it not only contributed to the visual of the pizza, but also what I thought was the taste and the mouthfeel, I guess, of the pizza was when I asked you about the mozzarella, because there was that salami pizza that had just been taken out of the oven, was sitting there on display. And I said, man, that thing looks beautiful. And you were saying that with the mozzarella, you don't use shredded mozzarella. You you we cut slice it, sh- it. You slice it. Yeah. So, so and, and the way it looks, I mean, it just looks amazing. But why do you do that? Um, yeah, because when you shred the uh, mozzarella, and it also depends on the kind of uh, cheese that you're using, um, we use a higher fat content cheese. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... By shredding it, you actually, when it melts, it's it's tougher as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we basically place sheets of uh, thinly sliced mozzarella on our pizza. So we, we cover it pretty much right up to the edge of the crust. Mm-hmm. We don't want much of a crust showing because, quite frankly, people kind of, you know, can take it or leave it as far as the crust is concerned. Right. And we want to offer 16 inches of bliss. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything <laughs> is everything is covered. Sorry, that's um, my inner yeah. child coming out there. <laughs> yeah, we're on the same wavelength. Um, but uh, anyway, I digress. Uh but it's it's you know it's it's the fresh tomatoes it's the cheese and how it's it's just the attention to detail so again slicing the cheese and then placing it on the uh, pizza makes all the difference it, it really does and I mean could, the 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 way that uh, I don't know the way that it's baked like the 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 softness like there's I I'm very particular about how I like my pizza and it was I don't know it was like uh, you know the light was shining down angels were singing when this thing was on my plate it was perfect yeah. it was perfect so good that I actually bought an entire pizza after buying a slice and brought it home and ate the whole damn thing <laughs> which is not healthy but uh, totally well this pizza is actually not that bad for you and in <laughs> fact uh, you know uh, just a little uh, little side note um, I've been eating the pizza there ever since we every single day ever since we introduced it and on my way back home I'm going to be picking up some um, I can brought tell some you, here huh I could have but you know what <laughs> our pizza oven wasn't even up to temperature yet uh, so okay. I thought yeah. about it and I thought yeah we'd have to turn on that oven at around seven o'clock this morning to get it ready for oh, you okay um, <laughs> but uh, in any event um, I've lost 15 to 20 pounds I know you look Just, great man Thanks, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, we can talk about that more a little later on. Uh, I don't um, know what you're talking about, but uh, <laughs> but um, no. It, it, again, it's 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 the pizza. It's just the pasta. It's everything that we offer. It's just super fresh, and it's it's not laden with you know preservatives with yeah. um, trans fats, any of that stuff. Again, it's just the natural ingredients that we're using. And I I see how that makes a difference because again, I was going to say you're opening up uh, a restaurant. Uh, an Italian restaurant, and most people they'll say, you know, diet-wise, Italian food, nothing but carbs and all this stuff. And at the same time, because you're using fresh ingredients, no preservatives and whatnot, you've actually gotten healthier. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and I don't know how I would have been able to survive up until now without actually fueling myself with our food. And it's right. it's because you know there's long, long hours. I mean, I'd be spending for months, fourteen hours, fifteen hours a day at Barfredo. But before that, I was up working on my computer before I even arrived at Barfredo. And then I was back on my computer when I got home. So I'd be having, you know, 18 hour days and that would be going on for months and months, but I still had enough energy to continue on. And it was because, you know, I was eating cleanly. I was losing weight. Um, I spent 
pretty much every waking hour at Barfredo for a long time. And, um, you know, I, I do so now, but not, you know, to a lesser extent. But again, I have yet to actually grow tired of any of the food that we're offering. There's always, and it's not a huge menu either, but um, fresh food just makes such a difference. And booze, you're licensed. <clears throat> that's right, that's right. Um, to the best of my knowledge, we're the only licensed operator in any food court in Canada. Wow. Um, and that's something that we worked on with uh, Cadillac Fairview, who's the landlord. Uh, they wanted a licensed establishment. So when we uh, started discussions with them back in August of last year, um, we put forth a proposal um, which which ultimately was Barfredo, which was um, a licensed Italian establishment that offered fresh food. Nothing is, you know, brought in frozen and then reheated, uh, much like any other uh, food court tenant. Uh, we want to differentiate ourselves on many different levels. So it's the fresh food, it's the Italian fare, uh, it's being licensed, and it's also having an open kitchen where we're actually on full display. So there's nothing that we can do behind closed doors, so to speak. Right, yeah. You can see everything being prepared from you know the, the vegetables that we prep every morning and actually throughout the day, to the sauces, to the pizzas that we're making, to the gelato that we're making in front of customers. So... All right, so um, uh, the the name of this podcast is mostly money, mostly Canadian. So uh, we do have to talk, you know, some personal finance. Absolutely. <laughs> At this point, as opposed to just indulging, um, you know, my desire to talk about food. I am a foodie. And uh, again, if you are in Ontario, if you're near Etobicoke, make your way down to Sherway Gardens and check out Barfredo. And you're going to offer a, a promotion to the listeners of Mostly Money. Yeah. And uh, what is that promotion? So uh, anyone that wants to drop by, um, just let us know that you uh, heard us on a Preet's podcast, uh, Mostly Money, and uh, we'll offer you uh, either a regular size gelato or any one of our uh, regular size coffees on the house. There you go. So there is your, uh, you can put to the test what I've been talking about so you can see that I'm not just gushing over a friend's business. It is legitimately that good. So you go and the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So you go down there, mention that you heard about Barfredo at Sherway Gardens. It's in the it's Gourmet in the, uh, Fair. Gourmet Fair food court just above Harry Rosen. There you go. And you'll get uh, a free regular size coffee or gelato so you can see what we are talking about. Okay, so now, uh, let's talk a little bit about this transition again, how you went from the corporate world to something totally unrelated, you know, yeah. the food business. And that probably would have been a lot harder if you didn't have your finances, your personal finances in relatively good shape yeah. to be able to stomach downsizing and what have you. So tell me a little bit about, um, uh, you know, how you were able to make that transition and how your personal finances did play a role. Yeah. Um, so... My mother's Scottish, and I ah, think say no Sc more. So, oh, no. okay, no, go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there, there's some truth to the stereotype. I mean, Scots like to hang on to their money, and you know, that's something I was brought up with right from an early age. Um, you know, despite the fact that we were big, big savers uh, in our family for the longest time, uh, you know, I still managed to you know spend a little bit here and there. But what was really driven into me, and I'm so thankful for it, is it's really important to save for a rainy day. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I started that from, well, even before I started working, uh, you know, professionally, once I graduated, I was, I was a saver before then I was a forced saver. Right. Um, cause I was still living under my parents' roof, but 
you know, I, I managed to scrape together whatever money I made from mowing lawns and, and you know, working around the house and, and, you know, working around other people's homes. Uh, when I started working, uh, again, I had a, a fairly a disciplined approach to uh, money. And again, that was, you know, somewhat and thankfully forced on me by my uh, parents, but particularly my mother. Um, and, and that just sort of stuck with me. So um, I've been a saver all my life. I've, you know, when I first started working, I wasn't making much money at all. And in fact, I was making below uh, the poverty line at the time. So I think uh, my first job was $12,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that if I put in my hours and, you know, really sort of committed to the position that I could advance fairly quickly. And I did. Um, and I ended up making some, you know, pretty good money um, once I uh, got myself established, particularly in sales. Mm-hmm. And that went on for a number of years. But despite the fact that I'd been making, a, you know, good money for quite some time, I never really spent it because, mm-hmm. you know, never knew. I, you know, I'm still young, don't know what's on the horizon. Um, and uh, I just thought, okay, you know what, I'm going to continue saving. I'm not going to deprive myself of, you know, things, but I'm certainly not going to uh, fritter away cash that, you know, I could be using towards something like a house, um, an investment property or anything else of uh, the sort. So um, I was very fortunate on two counts. One, to have a mother that really sort of impressed upon me that it's always, always a good thing to save your money. And um, to have worked hard enough to have advanced and, and made you know a good income um, for quite a few years. Um, and, and also have a wife uh, who may not have been all that disciplined with her money before, but now she's just, you know, been incredibly disciplined and and really sort of um, uh, towed the rope on that as well. Mm-hmm. And so when uh, uh, your last downsizing was the last one, you say, all right, that's it. I'm now going to put my own stake in the ground. Yeah. And do you think that would have been as easy to do had you not, like if you take a look at the average person who may not be as disciplined as you when yeah. it comes to the saving habit and um, frugality, which is not cheapness. Frugality is, uh, you know, you spend money, but it's got to be worth it. Right. Right. So, you know, you look at other people, let's say same age, uh, but different personal financial habits. They may not have that option. No. And I, I know people that don't have that option. Uh, you know, they've, they've decided to spend their money on things like expensive cars mm-hmm. or um, clothes or whatnot. And, you know, that's what makes them happy. Um, but it doesn't, at the end of the day, give them as many options. Yeah, there's there's the trade-off, right? That's right. You do that and you're not as prepared for a rainy day like you were. And for me, you know, being a personal finance guy, I say you got to prepare for these rainy days because you just don't know when they're going to happen. It could be because of uh, the economy. It could be because your your particular industry is downsizing. It could be a car accident. It could be a death in the family. It can be anything. And you just don't know what it's going to be or when it's going to happen. So that's, I mean, you're a perfect example of why that advice is so good. Because now it's allowed you to maybe find your true life's passion. Um, And, uh, you know, it's so great uh, to see that. Um, and it comes through in, uh, in, in what you're doing now. Um, we only have uh, three minutes left on oh, my geez. SD card. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, you see, I get so, in, uh, uh, involved and, uh, 
it just your your story and food and whatnot. I get very excited. So so that's kind of my fault. Yeah. Uh, but the last thing I want to uh, touch on is uh, financial advice. So yeah. I have a lot of financial advisors, people in the industry come on and we get their perspective all the time. But I want to get the perspective of someone who is an outsider to that industry who engages with that industry. So I want I want to know what is your perception of the financial advice industry in general? In general, um, I think it's a sales industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a lot of people out there, particularly the institutions, the, the big commercial institutions, that don't necessarily, and, and quite frankly, why should they care about their customers any more than to you know develop a revenue stream from them? Right. Um, and, and you've got a lot of people that are working within that industry that are not, from my perspective, all that well-trained. Mm-hmm. Um, they're maybe trained as salespeople, but they're not trained as true financial advisors. And... I don't find that a lot of those advisors actually have any kind of real stake in your financial future, um, financial future success. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been quite leery of most of them uh, for a long time. And I think a large part of that is because I've seen that a lot of the uh, results uh, generated from, you know, what they've promised and what's actually occurred are two very different things. Um, You know, everything's done on historical uh, uh, performance. Um, uh, historical performance really means nothing at the end of the day, as far as I'm concerned, because I've been burned far too many times. So my approach has been find someone that's got a lot of integrity that, you know, from what I can uh, gather uh, in interviews with them, they, they understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they look at the bigger picture, not just what funds are out there and what are performing really well, but sort of take a look at what is good for you now and 20 years from now and how you can chart your growth and how you want to chart your growth. Um, Sort of develop a plan moving forward. And uh, that's something that um, I don't see much of. Um, We have someone now, um, thanks to yourself, that, uh, you know, is is helping us with that. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't have um, huge expectations of, you know, 10, 20% growth year over year. That's just not something I think is uh, reasonable. Yeah, because they're, I know the people that you're you're working, they're straight shooters. Um, And it's interesting what you said, you know, that your first take is it's a sales industry. Um, I don't know if you saw the follow-up to the movie Wall Street. It's called Money Never Sleeps, Gordon Gecko, Michael Douglas. Um, There was one line that he said that struck out at me as you said that is, is, um, you know, another fisherman always can spot another fisherman yeah. in the distance, right? And it's because you came from a sales background yeah. and you, when you look at it, you say, oh yeah, it's a sales culture, right? Which is very true. Uh, a lot of change on on the horizon, but all right. So now my SD card is like 30 seconds left, so we got to cut it off. Okay. So, so Alec, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's Bar Fredo at Sherway Gardens, which is in Etobicoke. Go down there, mention that you heard about uh, Bar Fredo on the podcast, and you'll get a regular, a free regular-sized coffee or gelato of your choice. And we are basically out of time, so that's it. Thanks again for being on the show. And to my faithful listeners, if you enjoyed this op- episode, the podcast in general, don't forget to head over to iTunes to leave a rating. It literally takes a few seconds. And speaking of a few seconds... We're out of time. So thank you very much and we'll see you next time. Ciao.